Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the third season of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Dan Hannum, who, uh, and bear with me, I'm, I'm going to introduce his position, but bear with me because he is not one of the guests that you'd hear on Pompliano's podcast. He's not one of those suits who talk about boring stuff. He is the CEO of Hannum Capital Management, and he's a fund manager, I guess, of his own company, and he works with Bitcoin. But trust me, he's a lot more interesting than the bland guests that you'd hear on other podcasts, which might be hosted by Pompliano. <laughs> <laughs> well, as much as I, I tend to agree, I'm definitely a, a big fan of, uh, of his podcast and, and just the overall conversation that he brings to uh to the ecosystem, but uh, but glad to be glad to be here with you and excited to to talk some Bitcoin. Okay, so what do you do more exactly? Are you having customers who buy Bitcoin through you? Yeah, so a little bit of background on myself, and, and then I can go into um, what we do here at uh, at Panem Capital. Um, I have a largely uh, my experience is largely in traditional finance. So I got my MBA uh, at the University of South Carolina here in, here in the States. Uh, went and spent about three and a half, almost four years on Wall Street between Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, um, and JP Morgan. And after that, linked up with, uh, with Brock Pearson um, on the Stevens Brothers at Blockchain Capital. Was there for about two years um, before starting Hanum Capital Management in late 2017. We raised our first fund from select LPs in 2017 and then a second fund in 2018, um, and pretty much have been scaling out not only our operations, but our investments uh, ever since. Our investments are largely in the crypto ecosystem, um, largely in infrastructure, um, and tend to be in either C or Series A rounds. Um, so hopefully that wasn't too boring, but gives a, gives a kind of a picture of my background and, and what we're doing today. Okay. So you have worked for a lot of investment firms on Wall Street. And why did you choose to get into Bitcoin? You could make a lot of money just sticking to traditional finance. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, for me, the, the way that I look at it is just what wakes you up in the morning and gets you out of bed? And what are you thinking about at night? And, and largely for me, I was, in, uh, I was in the high net worth individual portfolio management section of, of each individual asset bank. Um, and for me, really, that wasn't, well, that wasn't the deal. Um, it was always nice to, to make rich people richer, but for me, that wasn't what was getting me up in the morning. I got introduced to, to Bitcoin in early 2013 um, and fell down the rabbit hole shortly thereafter. Um, and right around then, it, it was trying to find the right opportunity to devote my time and career into the space. Um, was lucky enough to, to, to find some really good people to help uh, kind of reset some of the thinking in my brain um, from traditional asset classes, valuations into the crypto ecosystem. At the time, it was pretty small as well, that there weren't that many funds or projects um, in the space. There wasn't that many investments going into traditional equity rounds. It, it was largely um, in, into, into ICOs that were the ICOs before uh, the 2017 craze. So we, we worked on, uh, on the MasterCoin ICO, which was one of the first, and then Ethereum. And then um, it was something that I, I, day by day that went in, um, I, I spent more of my time outside of uh, the investment banks, focusing on the ecosystem, meeting with people, reading materials, looking at Medium, Reddit, Quora. Um, so yeah, for, for me, it was more just like a, a fascination with, with what this potential technology could, could hold, what it, what it could build, uh, 
I'm, I'm definitely more on the anarchist side, um, which is funny coming from uh, big banks. Um, but yeah, it was, it was something that kind of just sparked, uh, sparked something inside of me. I was right around the age of, of 24, 25. So a little bit outside of college, but not too deep in my career where I figured I can make a, make a leap of faith, uh, kind of devote the next two to three years into this ecosystem. If it pans out, uh, that was the hope. And if it didn't, I, I had some, some pretty good names on my resume and some pretty good connections and, um, and figured it, it wouldn't be too hard to, to get a job back in, in the banking sector and, and somewhere in finance. So, um, so that was kind of the, the origin, uh, the origin story. I guess that this week has been very interesting that we have had the congressional hearings. And I guess by the time people listen to the podcast, it will be last week. But we have seen for the first time a tendency for congressmen and important people to distinguish between Bitcoin and shitcoins. And I guess <laughs> it's part of the record on a congressional hearing and it's part of American history that the, the word shitcoin has been legitimized. And my question to you right now is, do you witness this kind of phenomenon of people realizing the fundamental advantages and value of Bitcoin as opposed to other cryptocurrencies? Is there a greater demand for Bitcoin as opposed to everything else? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people follow somewhat of a similar path. Um, and, and, and right before I get down the path, I definitely have to give a shout out to, uh, to uh, Tom Emmer and Patrick McHenry. Um, they were both, uh, both, in my opinion, very knowledgeable of the ecosystem, um, very, um, very much for innovation and building out the, the cryptocurrency eco ecosystem. And obviously seeing that there's a difference between Libra and, um, and Bitcoin. Um, and then on the opposite side, uh, I am uh, located here in, in Los Angeles in California. So uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Brad Sherman is un unfortunately a representative of, of our fine state. And it was uh, disheartening to see that in, in the six years between the last, uh, the last, um, uh, committee on, uh, on, on Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies that it doesn't seem like he's done much, if, if any, uh, any history or, or research um, on the topic. So that was a little disheartening. Um, but back to your question, I think the, the path that I see most of the time is people get interested in cryptocurrency through Bitcoin. And then once they get interested, they kind of have a false sense of, of being able to make returns in other assets. I, I think people have a, a general misconception that if you didn't invest in 2011, 12, 13, 14, and, and get into Bitcoin relatively early, that there's not much money to still be made, which uh, I uh, definitely disagree with. Um, but I think people get started in Bitcoin, look into altcoins and other aspects. Is they, they think if a coin's trading at 30 cents, the likelihood that it goes to 60 cents or a dollar is, is greater than Bitcoin going from uh, 5K to 10K, 5K to 15K, and anywhere in that range. Um, and then also, I think people just don't really understand the differences between Bitcoin and, and what other cryptocurrencies offer, the trade-offs between them. Um, so kind of the, the cycle that I tend to see is people get in through Bitcoin, explore the ecosystem, realize that um, it, it can take as short as a couple of weeks or a, a couple months, but typically end up trending back to Bitcoin um, once you get a better understanding of the trade-offs that it's consciously made, the benefits that, that it offers, um, and then also understand that, that um, that the potential for Bitcoin to increase monetarily is definitely in line with, or in my opinion, um, a better chance to appreciate uh, more rapidly than, than other altcoins as well. 
So demographically speaking, who are your customers? So our customers, in, in a sense, are, are really what we call limited partners or LPs. So we have four select LPs that, uh, that distributed capital into our first fund and our second fund. So to me, our investors are our customers. Other than that, we're actively managing their, their assets and our own assets into seed and Series A rounds in the crypto ecosystem. So if anything, we don't really have uh, customers in the sense that, that we're, we're providing a product um, or a service. Uh, I guess our service is providing um, pretty much ultra high net worth individuals exposure to an asset class that they previously didn't have access to. Um, a, lo a lot of our investors are, are fairly wealthy. They have either family offices set up or real estate or, um, or private equity or hedge fund exposure. So when you look at most of the, uh, the asset classes that they can invest in, they, they pretty much checked off every box except for cryptocurrency. And I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and, and, had a, had a track record, not only in traditional finance, but in crypto. And then with my own personal portfolio, um, that I was able to, to convince some guys to give me, give me a chance. Um, so for, for us, really our customers are our investors and we try to act as best uh, as we can to be stewards of their money and not only protect them against uh, downside risk, but ultimately maximize the upside reward as well. I was actually much more curious to know the average age of your customers. Because I guess it's mainly people who don't want to open their own maybe Coinbase or Cash App accounts and buy on their own. Yeah, so to, to give some insight on, on our first fund, our first fund was a, a $50 million fund. So as you can imagine, it's um, probably more money than, than most investors are putting into a Coinbase account. Um, our, our, average, our average investor has uh, upwards of nine to 10 figures uh, of net worth. Um, their average check size when investing into a, a fund is typically in the 10 to 20, 10 to 30 million dollar range. Um, so at, at the time, I, I think they were looking for a portfolio manager and an investment officer that had experience not only allocating capital of that size, but had an understanding of the ecosystem. Um, to answer your question as far as like age range, um, I believe our, our youngest LP is probably late 50s and our oldest in, in late 70s. So Typically, the older crowd, who I think realized the potential of the asset class, but didn't either didn't care enough um, or just didn't have the time and the um, the willingness to take a to learn about the ecosystem, figure out how to actually deploy capital on their own. Uh, most of our LPs are are not funded fund managers or, or in the investment world. They have different people that manage their wealth for them, um, and I'm lucky enough to be the the crypto uh, the crypto side of, the, of their wealth management. Yeah, I, I was thinking that this kind of situation where you entrust somebody to hold the assets for you and basically in the case of Bitcoin, hold your private keys is very convenient for somebody like my father because he doesn't get the point of it. He sees it as some kind of speculative asset, doesn't understand the disruptive nature and how it can be the new gold in which you store your value and it cannot be confiscated. So if he was to invest into Bitcoin, he would probably go to somebody like you and make a greater investment than I ever can because he has more money than me. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the private key issue and custody in general is definitely, um, definitely a hot topic, uh, even in the last few years. And I think we'll be, uh, we'll be moving forward. Actually, I actually had a, a tweet uh, a day or two ago um, that self-custody versus third-party custody shouldn't necessarily be a binary choice. 
I don't think uh, users, customers, uh, investors in, in the ecosystem actually need to make that choice, whether it's your, uh, not your keys, not your coins, or custody is the worst thing in the world. I, I think it's really an ever-evolving spectrum that should allow the greatest number of users to participate. We definitely have, from our LP and, and investment base, um, our investors are, are definitely not the type that want to deal with the security of, of managing their own assets um, and, and definitely are comfortable with, uh, with providing their private keys and, and their custody to our, uh, our discretion. We the amazing uh, providers that, uh, that offer custody solutions for us. Um, and, then, and then on the other side, I, I think it does happen to be an, an age issue as well. Um, most of my friends or, uh, or people that I went to school with, whether it's high school or college, I think they're, they're generally more acceptable um, or welcoming to the idea of, of getting a treasure, getting a, a ledger, um, securing their keys, um, understanding how to make the, the first couple transactions. Um, although I think it's risky uh, in, in the sense that I think, um, I, I think it's not, not necessarily risky, but I think it's just nerve wracking. I, I think any time that I've walked uh, a friend or a colleague or family member through their very first Bitcoin transfer, um, it, it's definitely a nerve wracking process. I, I, I think um, not only securing your, your private key, your information, your, your seed phrase and things like that, but then also making those transactions um, can definitely become a little bit easier. But I think that's also the trade-off that we make with, with Bitcoin is the sense that we're making a pretty, a pretty, uh, a pretty knowledgeable trade-off between security and usability. And I think as, as the security features continue to increase, the usability will continue to increase as well. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's not only a generational gap between overall tech, um, tech abilities, but, but also just um, the, the, the dependence on, on your assets as well. I think when you're, when you're securing tens of millions of dollars, you, you typically are, are more welcome to making sure that it's done correctly. Whereas um, some of my friends maybe only have a thousand bucks or 5,000 bucks, which definitely I'm not saying is, a, is something that you want to get rid of or are, are happy if it disappears. But I think, um, I think that's also an, an element of, uh, of the custody um, uh, equation as well. Right. But basically, what kind of security do you offer that people cannot get with their own treasure? Yeah. So I don't think it's anything in the sense that you can't receive. I, I think it's just usability. Um, we, we have, uh, we have our, our custody through Genesis um, and, and also through Gemini. Um, so two pretty top-notch um, custody providers that provide more institutional-grade custody um, it's something that um, that I think just makes our LPs more comfortable knowing that there's a third party in, involved. Um, whereas uh, I don't think there's anything wrong. I personally have uh, have a few different treasures, a few different ledgers, a, a keep key, a cold card. Um, pretty much any solution that I see comes out is something that I'm willing to, to give a try and learn about. Um, but I think our, our LPs have a little bit different focus on on uh, on being able to know that their assets are secure and safe. Um, and I think there, there is providers that, um, that, that provide a, a better solution than, than we could come up with. I mean, I think for us, it, it's really partnering with, with firms that provide solutions to our clients, whether it's a, a BlockFi or um, a company like that, that they can provide, a, that can provide um, uh, yields on, on BTC holdings or if it's a company that provides custody as well. Um, so I think that that's kind of like the, the, the trade-off, in my opinion, is just the, the amount of assets that you hold um, 
can, can make a difference between a, a, a custody provider or a, a hard wallet solution. Um, and I don't think there, there's, like I said, I don't think there's really a one size fits all. I, pretty much all of my individual, um, individual friends, family, colleagues, things like that, um, we, we definitely recommend getting a hardware wallet, getting your assets off of exchanges and having the ability to keep to keep that uh, safe. But uh, even with that, I think I have friends that keep their assets on Coinbase. That they use Coinbase, it's easy to use. Uh, the UX UI is probably the top top notch from a ex- uh, centralized exchange point of view. Um, I don't think the decentralized exchange structure is necessarily there on the UX UI side yet to get your average customer involved. So, so um, I, I have a ton of friends that uh, that keep their assets on Coinbase with with Coinbase custody. So, um, I, like I said, I, I don't really think there's like a, a right or wrong or a one size fits all solution. So my next question to you has to do with the market cycles. And if you started your company back in 2017, I guess you have witnessed that phenomenal bull market. And then in 2018, you have seen it all go down gradually. And how would you describe your experience with your clients, basically? Because I guess they were watching the news and seeing how the price was going down. And did they question anything about Bitcoin? Um, I mean, not necessarily. I, I think that the one big difference in, in the sense of how our firm is set up is we're largely a, a venture firm. So instead of having actively managed portfolios of token assets, we invest largely in seed and series A rounds. So I think there's always a, a trade-off involved with that um, in, in the sense that I think you can get additional liquidity, um, some additional uh, returns on, on having an actively managed portfolio. But for us, largely 95, 96% of our investments are directly into seed and series A rounds. So the average lifespan of, a, a, um, of an investment that we're making into a company is typically anywhere between four to 10 years, depending on if they raise additional capital, if, the, if there's product market fit, um, those types of things. And, and obviously, there's different metrics when you're investing in the seed round versus your series A round. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely interesting because I think anytime the, the price goes from 20,000 or, or 19,8 to 3,000 in, in a 12 month span. I think people, uh, people definitely get worried about, about if the future's there. Uh, I think when the price goes down, the ability for teams to, to build can change. But I think, uh, I, I think you start seeing the ecosystem and the infrastructure needed to bring on the next million users gets built during the bear market. So I think uh, as much as 2018 might not have been good for an actively managed portfolio or for an everyday retail investor, I think it was really good for a firm like ours that are investing in, in entrepreneurs and, and uh, in companies that were building during that time frame um, that are now getting set up to, to help onboard uh, the, the next couple million uh, users into the space. Right. So let's talk about you as a person, because I, I guess you got to talk about your firm. But I'm curious to know what gets you most excited about Bitcoin right now. Is there any specific application or development which makes you very curious and keeps you interested to read the news every day and maybe think of ways of integrating it into your firm? Yeah, I mean, I think layer two technology as a whole is definitely something that, that fascinates me. I think that was definitely one of the, the, the easier kind of um, arguments to be made uh, before Lightning and before some layer two technologies came out that the Bitcoin stack was just not there that you weren't able to build things on top of the Bitcoin protocol 
Um, I think the, the ability to not change the underlying protocol is, is a feature. Um, so I'm very excited for Lightning and other Layer 2 technologies to come out that can add different functionality without actually changing the underlying protocol. Um, Lightning Network is definitely a big one. I, I think there's always a discussion between the store of value versus the payment use case. Um, there's definitely a, a big divide between people who um, who are investing in Bitcoin for a store of value and, and typically the, the earlier investors that um, that looked at it as, a, as an electronic cash system. Um, I happen to agree with um, Murad, uh, Mustap Murad is his Twitter handle. Um, he has a, a really interesting chart kind of showing the delineation between having to actually become a store of value before a medium of exchange. Um, but to, 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 sorry, to get back on point, um, I, I think layer two technology is definitely something that, that fascinates me. Um, to the ability to build up the, the, the Bitcoin stack allows us to really look at different features such as like DeFi for, for one was such a big topic in, in um, for Ethereum. And now we're starting to see different, uh, different, uh, different technologies that can be built on top of, uh, on top of Bitcoin that, that can actually replicate some of those features. Did you ever try to mix your Bitcoins with Wasabi or Join Market or Samurai? I am, uh, I am a big fan. Um, I'm a big fan uh, of, uh, of Wasabi, of Samurai, of CoinJoin. Uh, I think that's something that really fascinates me about Snore um, and, and Taproot and Mast and some of these new proposals as well, is adding that ability of privacy to, to Bitcoin. I think that's also something that's not really talked about as often as it should be in the sense that I think a lot of people that get into Bitcoin think that it's this untraceable um, this untraceable token that no one can ever see. And you see that with, with firms like Elliptic and Chain Analysis that, uh, that it, it's not, not as untraceable as you, as you think it is. So I'm all for privacy. I think privacy is a fundamental right, um, especially when operating online. So um, it, it, I'm definitely a, a big fan of adding some of these privacy features uh, to, to the Bitcoin protocol. Okay. But what was your experience trying Wasabi, for example? Because when I first tried it, I, I found it frightening, the idea that your coins disappear and get into this coordinated process to which you have to complete the cycle and then you receive your Bitcoins in small chunks and gradually. That, that was kind of, you know, frightening because you're, I was thinking that there might be an error in the system and I might not get the coins back, even though that's impossible. And I have spoken to the lead developer, Adam, and he told me that it's all mathematical and algorithmic and there is no way for anyone to get screwed in the process. But it's still, you know, different knowing that every transaction is immutable and there is no call to be made and say, okay, so I lost my funds. Can you please return them? <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree. And I think, I think that's kind of going back uh, to the point of even on like on the wallets and, and, and on custody. I think, I think there, there's, um, I, I think the element of having some privacy definitely lends itself to more tech savvy users in the sense that understand, they may not understand the intricacies, which, which I, I certainly don't. I'm definitely not a, not a, not a coder myself. I'm not, I'm not super technical. I, I couldn't tell you how Wasabi works. Um, but I, I definitely experienced some of those same um, same impressions of of a little bit of a little bit of being scared, a little bit of being unsure, uh, definitely a little bit of waiting to make sure that it all worked. Um, 
but I think that's that's kind of how it typically starts. It typically starts uh, as more secure and a little bit more tech, and then ends up there. There's people that understand that it can be a little bit more user friendly, and, and then I think that's what, what's going to be worked on in the next six to twelve months is making features like Wasabi and um, and CoinJoin a little bit more easy to use. Um, but I think that's kind of the trade-off between not your keys, not your coins. So I think there, there, there may not be a, the type of user that is willing to self-custody and, and go through these steps to make sure that they're operating privately um, yet. And I think as we make that process easier and, and, and more uh, user-friendly, it, it'll definitely increase the usage. For, from your perspective, back in 2017, when there was the scaling debate and there was the Bitcoin Cash side, which split from the main chain, how did you perceive all the events with the New York agreements and all these people trying to change the main protocol? Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I think, no, it's obvious. You can look at it and say it was a good idea to stick to the store of value narrative. But back in the day, it was hard to have any kind of accurate prediction of what was going to happen. In a sense, the big block narrative that the number of transactions would subsidize miners more effectively than... I forgot my point, but anyway, the big block <laughs> narrative was eluding in a sense. And I remember being caught into these RBTC, which is the Bitcoin Cash subreddit, RBTC discussions in which they were saying that Blockstream is funded by Wall Street and it's evil and it has these conspiracies going on and that Bitcoin Cash is trying to preserve the original vision and that they have Gavin Andreessen who supports the project and Gavin has been basically the leader of Bitcoin for a long time. And I wasn't very much involved in the space at the time and getting to this kind of discussion made me really think that it's, difficult with Bitcoin and it kept me away for a while from getting involved much more. And I'm actually curious to know how it looked like from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think in one sense, I think that's something that that um, that I generally like in the sense that if, if you believe that you can fork the, the protocol and create a, a better Bitcoin, then I'm all for it. I, I think what is determined is ultimately the adoption. And as you can see with Bitcoin Cash between Bitcoin Core, I, I think the, the miners and the general ecosystem and users have, uh, have definitely sided more towards Bitcoin Core. Um, I, I think the, the hard part in the sense is, is I think it got way too personal way too quickly. And I think it became more of like a personal um, kind of uh, X crusade than it was like a tech, uh, a tech principle. I think there's always kind of a, um, a a challenge in the ecosystem between having like funded organizations like Blockstream, um, like uh, uh, like um, like uh, blockchain, um, that info and things like that that um, that that have their own ideas. But I think that's something that I've come to enjoy uh, is the overall user consensus model that Bitcoin has. Um, and the ability for even larger institutions or corporations or individuals that may think a different way, it's ultimately up to the, the miners and the users to, to decide which, which fork they're going down. And I think, as you mentioned, hindsight's definitely twenty twenty. It's, it's easy to look back and, and see that I, I believe the decision uh, to, keep, um, to keep the block size smaller was definitely the right one. I think 
what, what a lot of people overlook as well is when SegWit was introduced, the block size actually increased a, a little bit. So I think that was helpful. Um, and I think the other thing that was just a little bit detrimental um, was was, uh, was Roger Ver and then and, and kind of his crew that that have uh, have the, the Bitcoin dot uh, com address and and the BTC um, Twitter handle. So I think. I think it was a realization that even that the um, even some early adopters like uh, like Roger that has done a lot to build Bitcoin to what it was um, kind of had that the their own kind of self clout that I think allowed the Bitcoin Cash um, side of things to to even have kind of a chance. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, I think it, it's it was an interesting thing. I, I think a lot of good came out of it. Uh, I think. One thing that I think could be improved upon is trying to have in-person meetings um, and try to have more more face-to-face discussions around this. I, I think Twitter's uh, what I've realized is Twitter is a, a pretty poor medium for thoughtful exchange, especially when you're disagreeing. Um, and I think a lot of the the battle was held out on, on Twitter, which has character limits, and sometimes you're not able to to get through your your point correctly. So. I, th- I think there's a lot of bad and a lot of good that that came out of it, um, and I think ultimately Bitcoin Core, the, the the actual protocol, is definitely stronger for for having gone through some of the hard fork battles of 2017. I disagree with you, and I guess you have iterated the argument of Eric Voorhees during the Bitcoin 2019 conference. He said pretty much the same stuff, but in the case of something which is open and it's supposed to be run by the nodes and the users who decide which side of the protocol they are following, it's useful to have the discussions in a public place and in a way which can be followed and which can get feedback from people who might not be in New York and might not be millionaires, but they run their own node and they have their own voting power. And maybe that in-person meetings are good to establish connections and be able to have better human relations but at the same time when it's something as serious as the bitcoin protocol itself it's useful to have public debates and trolling aside i think twitter is very good in terms of sending messages and getting the community engaged otherwise it would be just like another big financial corporation where you have a few shareholders who get to make the decisions and everybody else just here is some kind of distorted press release, which doesn't cover everything in terms of arguments and in terms of concerns. That's why I, I think all this toxicity by Bitcoin maximalists, it seems maybe deterring in the short term. Maybe some people did not get into Bitcoin specifically because they felt intimidated. But it was good in terms of preserving the community and building something from a grassroots perspective, as maybe that the growth of Bitcoin in terms of adoption was stunted in some sense. And it did not become this generally accepted mean of exchange in some stores, like there was a trend back in 2014, maybe. But it's beneficial for the community to understand the fundamentals. And if you agree that Bitcoin should not be changed and you create a community which seems to agree with it and you have a larger number of people who run their own nodes, 
then that's beneficial in the long run. And it's going to grow organically as opposed to having a company like, I think it's BitPay, which is owned by Roger Veer. And it was the payments processor responsible for most of the partnerships in which Bitcoin was accepted with merchants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, I think, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily... I don't think everything that was that went on was handled in the right way. Um, did to give you some input from from my end, I was definitely a spectator. Uh, I was definitely not in any closed doors meetings um, or anything like that. I definitely agree that I think I think those types of meetings are detrimental. Um, I, I guess my, my point was just I, I think on topics like that where there is so much not only tech involved but also community consensus involved. I, I think. And maybe there's just a, a better way to have that Discord online, whether it's through um, through Reddit or, or, or another channel. I, I just think Twitter might not be the best solution. I, however, I think crypto Twitter is a fascinating uh, a fascinating place. I, I get a lot of value um, and, and overall uh, kind of joy in, in going back and forth with, with different people on different topics. I just think when, when it's something as serious as that, um, having an ability to articulate your position in, in over 280 characters might be beneficial moving forward. I, I guess I can agree with this, but at the same time, it's good to be concise and formulate your argument in a comprehensive way. And if you have a larger point to make, you can just share an article or a Reddit post. That's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I'm definitely not uh not uh, I don't have my feet set in uh, set in the stone that uh, that it's uh, the the right way or, or the wrong way. I think I think like you said, you can definitely write up kind of a, a long form dissertation or agreement or disagreement in, into a, an article or a blog and then share that through Twitter. So um, so yeah, like I said, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong or right about that. Um, I guess my overall feedback is just uh, looking back on, on, on kind of like the four quarters. Uh, it's easy to, to look back and maybe have a, a better understanding of, of how everything played out than, uh, than kind of being in the nitty gritty of it during that couple of weeks span. Did you have lately any clients who demanded to buy Bitcoin cash? Um, not necessarily. Um, like I said, most of our investments are in seed and series A rounds. Um, so our liquid portfolio is definitely pretty small. Um, luckily we, we have a, a board that, that, um, that, that we meet on when, when we're making, uh, investments into our, our liquid portfolio. Um, so I, I think it's more just, I, I think it's more just if our LPs are interested in, in learning more, hopefully sending them some, some good links and articles and explaining the difference between the, 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 uh, the actual protocols, um, than it is like having uh, having an LP come in and, and demand that that we make an investment. I think that's kind of the, the difference in trade off between having a, a fund and with with LP structure in the sense that if our investors um, kind of believed in, in their ability to make those decisions for themselves and, and dedicate the time, um, the capital, the resources to, to making their own investment decisions, um, I don't know if they necessarily would invest in in, in our fund. So I think. Um, we, we, we ultimately try to do a good job of explaining um, and articulating our investment thesis and, and why we are investing in the things that we do. Um, but but we, we haven't necessarily had like anyone come in and say, um, you need to put money here or there, um, for example. Yeah. 
And I guess right now the narrative of the big block Bitcoin has kind of faded. And it also has been divided with the BSV camp. And that side is just crazy in some <laughs> degrees. Yep. They have yeah. basically defeated the whole point of Bitcoin. With their <laughs> idea of unlimited blocks and basically storing everything in their blocks from pictures to videos to anything else. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an interesting, I mean, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think there's what, like five or six different Bitcoin forks between Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin Cash, and so on and so forth. So I think, I think it, the, the harm that it does is it, it, it causes your, your traditional investor that, that maybe doesn't know the difference between what the trade-offs are involved to, to be a little bit confused. I know I have friends that didn't really understand what Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash was. Same thing with like Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic. Um, so I think sometimes sports can be a little bit difficult for like a retail investor to, to get through the differences, the trade-offs, understand where they want to put their money. I think at the same time, at the end of the day, a lot of retail investors just want to put their money where they think that they can gain more. They, they might not actually care about the tech or the trade-offs involved. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bitcoin SV is definitely something that's, just fascinating to watch. I mean, uh, I think as you see fake Toshi get caught in his web of, in my opinion, just kind of outright lies and, and just things that he says that he can't back up and the, the, the testimony involved um, between, I think he had hearings like two or three weeks ago and then has a, an up, update or an upcoming like litigation with Peter McCormick and, and things like that. I think, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how that whole escapade will turn out. Um, I, I obviously am, am not hundred percent sure that um, who or they or she or um, what Satoshi is or was. Um, I just, I strongly don't believe that it was Craig Wright. Um, and that's just my opinion. Do you think that the fact that Bitcoin has no known creator or creators is detrimental to investments and some people just say if i don't know who created this i will not put my money in it yeah i mean i think i think it has two clear advantages actually um having the the, the leaderless ability is something that uh, a, a, another bitcoin can't fork away so you can't actually fork away the creation story of bitcoin and also the time in which it was released so i think a lot of people forget about 2008 2000 not not necessarily forget about but i think the timing of when Bitcoin was released, having an, an anonymous founder that isn't um, isn't the CEO, isn't directly involved, um, is actually an advantage. And then also on an, an additional point, I think as you start seeing with Facebook and, and with Libra, I think not having a, a CEO that you can call in to testify or having uh, a company that you can subpoena is, is an actual a really big advantage for Bitcoin as well. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is the right answer. But when I think of investment firms and management capital funds or whatever, I think of the generation of my father, of baby boomers and Gen Xers. And it's them who have this kind of mindset in which they have to trust somebody. And when they see, for example, my father, when I try to explain to him that Bitcoin has no known creator, he told me that's not something that can be trusted because there is nobody you can hold accountable. 
And yeah, I mean, I think that this kind of mindset is not singular to my father and it's generational. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think that's, excuse me, I have some insight coming from traditional Wall Street as well, where, where you have quarterly earning calls, you, you have the ability to speak directly to the management team, you have um, better, um, kind of better insights in, into how the company operates and functions. Um, so it, it was definitely something that um, took a little bit to, to get used to. I think, um, I think it's an advantage. I think it, def it definitely raises questions. Um, but I think overall, having what are, what are we now 10 years of, of having Bitcoin alive uh, and, and well, I think that the Lindy effects that that, that creates uh, of not going away, of, of having people try to hack it, having people try to fork it, just makes it stronger. So I, I think I think it's all about like framing. So I, I think it's it's making sure that you describe the advantages in a way um, that that just kind of showcase why not having a CEO or a figurehead is important. Um, and I, but I, but I do agree with you. I think, I think for, for instance, uh, my mother has a, some, uh, some BTC holdings and I think she was in, in that same camp of, uh, of trying to find the CEO online and trying to find the company and, and trying to find where the address was and things like that. So I think it is a little bit of a generational divide, but I think, I think that happens with, with new technology. I, I think, I think, and I'm sure there's something that you've heard a bunch of times, but if you told someone about Airbnb and Uber 10, 15 years ago, it was literally what my parents grew up teaching me not to do. Don't go in strangers' houses and don't go in strangers' cars. And then you have, uh, you now have the ability to kind of have that, that peer to peer trust. Obviously there, there's an organization involved with, with Airbnb and with Uber, but I think as a peer to peer economy continues to grow, the, the trust in a centralized organization continues to, to diminish and you start trusting, uh, trusting your peers. And I think that's something that, uh, that is obviously big in, um, in Bitcoin of, of don't trust, but verify. And I think the ability for people to run full nodes and actually see the transaction history way back to the Genesis block, if they so choose to, I, I know a lot of people that don't have uh, full nodes. Um, but I think that, that gives people a sense of comfort, but, um, but I definitely agree. I, I think, I think the older crowd um, is not used to having uh, an, an investable asset class like that. But when you look at it from like a store of value investable idea, when, when you, when you try to equate that to like gold, there's, there's definitely like um, there's definitely companies and organizations that have built up around gold, but there, there's not like a central figurehead that, that mints the gold. Um, and I guess that, that gets into religion <laughs> if you believe in uh, religion and, and, having someone who created the earth and things like that. But I, I, I guess my point being is, um, is, is from a store of value uh, perspective, um, when you look at like gold, um, it, it's definitely, there's not really like a CEO of gold company or um, a person that, that has the, their face behind that. So um, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just uh, too much rambling, but, uh, but I guess that's my perspective. I guess in hindsight, the comparison with gold is useful. Even though some people disagree and say that no, Bitcoin is not digital gold, it's programmable money in the way of allowing you to save. <coughs> But when you present it to people who have never heard of Bitcoin and cannot understand the advantages of it, if you say it's digital gold, which cannot be confiscated and cannot be censored, I guess some people will see the value a lot faster. If you're presented like this, and I guess Saifedean through his book, the Bitcoin standard has 
found an angle which is useful in terms of introducing Bitcoin to new people? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a, I'm a big metaphor fan. And I think that the more metaphors and, and likeness that you can provide when, when introducing people to new technology, the new ideas, it helps them just rationalize it. And I think it's something that, that I had to go through when I first got into the industry of, of people even doubting Bitcoin. Uh, and then just kind of walking them back through how money has progressed is definitely such an easy way. Um, I, I think uh, Safadine has done a great job. But I think even if you look back to 30, 40 years ago, when, when people first were issued credit cards, that was kind of a mind-blowing idea to, to, to say that, okay, now all your assets are on this piece of plastic and you, you go around to different stores and, and you swipe it and somehow it all like adds up. Um, so I, th I think there's, there's use cases that, that you can go back to and, and maybe not, they're not one-to-one, -one, they're exact replicates, which I don't think there's really anything, but I think there's, there's enough similarities between either technologies or different use cases of technologies that, that help people just conceptualize what's going on. And I think when you get people that actually kind of understand the big picture, that's when they start diving into to, to what makes Bitcoin different, what makes it valuable, what, what makes it something that they should invest in or spend time on. So um, I, I'm definitely a big fan of, of making real world um, equivalents or, or, um, or, uh, or things like that where, where, where you're using something that someone may understand and then kind of using that to explain Bitcoin um, so they get that kind of aha moment. Do you ever get this impression that Bitcoin might be a cult? This is a recurring question throughout the show, but it's interesting to get different answers from the guests. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think, I think there's definitely a cultist element to, to Bitcoin, and I think the shared belief that it'll continue to increase is definitely something that that's for uh, for Bitcoin. Um, I think that the the main kind of overall consensus that, that you hear most people talk about when they talk about money is, is that it's a belief system. So what makes the, the dollar valuable, we believe, and, and the, the U.S. government backs up that it's valuable. What made, going back to like the Safadine uh, analogy, what made seashells or rocks valuable? People believe that they were worth value, things like that. So um, so I, I think that's one aspect is, is the more people that believe that it's valuable, that get involved, um, it's definitely something that increases the network. And I think with a, uh, with a cap supply, just kind of like simple supply and demand economics kind of show that, that if more people are holding and, and more people are buying, that the price naturally increases. I mean, I think that actually helps the Bitcoin bull case in the long run of my opinion that I think we need to become a store of value first become we, before we become a, a medium of exchange and can be used for payment. So um, to, to answer the, the question more specifically, I, I think there's definitely a cultist element. I, I think radical ideas in general have a cultist element. I think there takes, there takes uh, the early adopters to, to make a technology real and, and to get people interested in it. I think there's, there's been such a, a warm welcome, not only through anarchists, but technologists, but traditional finance people like myself that have got into the industry that, um, that believe in kind of the, the long-term value. And I think there's definitely a group of people that, 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 that are the, the hodlers that are, that are going to hold on uh, for, forever. Um, and I think there's people that are, are in it just to make a quick buck or um, are, are more interested in, in the USD value. And I think that's something that's also interesting to, to bring up as well as a lot of my close friends are, are more interested in, in, in the 
unfortunately, in, in the appreciation of their dollars. So, so they want to invest in it when it's 10K and then get out when it's 20K and double their money. I'm more in, in it for the accumulation of Bitcoin. So I think it's kind of a, a mindset switch from looking at things through a, a BTC lens versus a, a fiat accumulation lens. But, um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a, a cultist element to it. Um, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes I think of Bitcoin and I draw parallels to the Protestant church as the purpose of Protestantism was to make people read the Bible and make their own impression of it, as opposed to trusting a central authority like the Catholic church, which was telling them how to interpret the scripture. And the whole don't trust verify movement is very similar to that. And also, it's interesting to see how people quit their jobs and basically bring the, their skill set into Bitcoin one way or the other. When people discover Bitcoin for the first time, they get caught up and then they think, how can I use the skills that I have to bring value into this? And this is what makes me think of it as more of a church or a cult, because in, in cults, you see people who give up on their lives just to be able to serve that greater purpose. The main difference is that we are financially incentivized to do it, as opposed to cults, which are all about the promise of an afterlife. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's uh, an, interesting, an interesting topic. I mean, I think one of the things that I typically ask like my friends um, when they're getting into to Bitcoin, especially is, is understanding or asking them what money is. And I think the, the amount of people that have just kind of believed that our money is, is worth something that, um, that, that, that just don't understand what, like what money actually is um, and, and what it's used for is really the first place I go. So for me, it's more of a question of why, like, why are you interested in Bitcoin? What makes it interesting for you other than making additional fiat dollars from it? Um, so I think that's kind of like the, the first case, which I, I think you brought up in the fact, in the sense of showing people the, the white paper, providing articles, um, and things like that, that they, that give kind of like an overview of, of what this technology is about and what it can do to separate the state and the money. And I think, I think as, as you start seeing the macro environment continue to dissipate, which I, I know probably most retail consumers are not as interested in as far as like. Um, as a macro financial system. But I think, um, I think the overall trust in corporations and government has continued to decrease. So people start questioning their leadership and questioning why, um, why they're trusting in things. And I think that's a, a good thing. And I think as more people ask that question of why, more often they start being led to other, other solutions and, and other organizations. And I think as more people, unfortunately, fall into poverty and, and have their wealth either confiscated or diminished through hyperinflation or even just regular inflation, um, they're, they're looking for better alternatives. And I think Bitcoin is definitely uh, the best alternative out there. So I think, I think having the, the ability to start questioning things, not only in Bitcoin and in crypto, but in life, is such a massive advantage. Because um, once you understand why or, or why not, then you can start making your own opinions on on, on things like that. So I have friends that have looked into Bitcoin and, and it's not for them uh, as much as I can uh, protest and provide articles and examples and, and scriptures and things like that, that, that help them hopefully open their eyes and see what's building. Um, there's people that just don't, don't believe in, in, in digital money. Um, which is funny because most of our, our fiat money is digital anyways. But, um, I, I guess the point is 
well, having more people questioning why um, and, and, and seeing that the institutions and, and governments and corporations typically aren't to be trusted or don't have their the right incentives in line for their users um, is leading to, I think, an overall revolution um, and evolution in, in people interacting with, uh, with each other and then also um, in the evolution uh, of the separation of state and money. Yeah, to somebody like my father, that's a very wild concept. And he just tells me when we try to talk about Bitcoin, because it's hard <laughs> to debate anything with him because he, he's an old school economist and he yeah. has very fixed opinions about matters. And to him, the idea of Bitcoin is some sort of adolescent movement of people who did not accept to grow up and accept the financial system in which they live. And they're trying to be dreamers and create and establish a financial environment for themselves. But I guess it's their fault because we were the ones who were born into a situation in which our nations are in debt and we have to work for most of our lives to pay the debt that we did not make. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree. I think that's that's the other aspect of, of like the Bitcoin revolution is not only in 2008, 2009, when you had kind of the banking and, and financial meltdown, but I think the, the, the debt ceiling is something that people are becoming more and more aware of. And I think, uh, I, know, I don't know the exact stats, but I was looking at something the other day that I think by 2026, the entitlements in America alone, as far as like social security, welfare, things like that, exceed the tax revenue. So at that point, how do we actually afford and, and pay for the things that we've promised to our citizens, especially in that older age, especially the people that have worked for 20, 30, 40 years and are counting on Social Security and their, their pensions and things like that to, to not only retire, but to survive. And I think, I think the debt aspect is a big piece. There's a lot of people that are fed up with not having any say in, in what our country is doing, with what we're printing. And I think the, the military has a big impact on that. I think our country spends an, an uh, an insane amount of money in, in, into military um, instead of into infrastructure um, and in, into its own citizens and its own uh, its own country. So I think uh, I, I think the debt is definitely a big piece. Um, I, I think it's interesting. I get this all the time from my friends that are a little bit upset with, with paying maybe student loans in, in the sense that their their student loans are at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. And sometimes their minimum payments going right towards uh, right towards the interest, and nothing to under the principal. I think you see that sometimes uh, that gets uh, overemphasized in articles that someone has loans of fifty thousand dollars from ten years ago, and and after paying it every month on time, that they now owe forty nine thousand. So it's like the the debt crisis, not only through student loans, um, but from an overall government perspective, is something that honestly scares me and frightens me. And I think our our um, our generation is more interested in trying to find a solution and, and is less less inclined to trust government uh, to provide that solution um, as, as each day goes by, as each as more money is printed, and as our debt continues to climb with no, uh, no likelihood of ending anytime soon. Yeah, you just made me realize that while some of us believe in a new financial system, which we establish on the basis of Austrian economics and sound money, Others just trust the government when they promise that they can just pardon debt and say everything that you owed to the government from your college days is going to be forgiven. But 
that's not really a pardon. It's not like they delete the debt, they have to print more money or they have to overtax in order to be able to pay for your 50K of student loans. Yes, it's uh, as someone who's definitely an advocate for sound money, um, it, it's something that somewhat upsets me in the sense that these political slogans of erasing student debt or providing um, providing stipends of, of thousands of dollars each month to every citizen, I just think there's such a such a, a a divide between how our money should work and how it does work. And I think as long as we can continue to print more of it, the ability to not pay back our debts will continue to increase. And even even uh, yesterday and the day before during some of the congressional hearings, you, you saw, um, I can't remember the exact uh, uh, congressman, um, but you saw some congressmen kind of allude to the fact that, that uh, we can always print more money. And I think that's that might be a scapegoat for them, but I think it's a, a giant warning warning sign, excuse me, and a big red flag for, for, for people that understand that there's really no way out of that. Um, and, and it's like, when you look at 08, 09, especially in America with, with, with the bank bailouts, it's like, how many times are the citizens gonna be called on to bail out the institutions that we decide to put trust into, whether they're banking, whether they're government. And I think that goes back to, to kind of the overall theory uh, of Bitcoin in the sense that uh, people are more willing due to the lack of trust in institutions and, and in government to, to even give Bitcoin a, a try or, or, or try to understand what it's doing. And I think when people get educated on what's what's going on, not only the supply cap, but the, the, the uh, supply schedule, how mining works, um, things like that, then they started actually understanding how a system like that could be a lot better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... It's it's just a it's a really uncomfortable situation uh, to to be in, in in a country who uh, who seems to answer every question with, with printing more money. I wouldn't want to be American right now because you, you <laughs> have so many issues and there's no clear answer to it. And there's the rise of populism in this regard with people who promise radical solutions which cannot be delivered in any way, from the wall and all the way to let's pardon all student debt and let's just make a socialist state like Denmark in the United States. That's, you know, two flavors of utopia which clash. And then you have the UBI, the universal, universal basic, basic income. income. Yeah, you have people like Andrew Young who promise to give you $1,000 a month and <laughs> start questioning, you know, the very foundation of money if they can just gamble with it like that and make it worthless, then what's yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, my last part was what's next. So they start with your money, they basically make it worthless and then <laughs> they're going to dismantle the whole value of the society. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think you've, you've even started to see that happen. Um, I was reading an article today um, that I retweeted, um, trying to think, find out who, um, who it was from, uh, from a handle called BTC Sessions. Um, and it's kind of the, the my path to Bitcoin maximalism, um, which I know we, we, we discussed on here could be, a, could be another topic. But, um, but basically, they, they gave a kind of a brief history of, of the United States and, uh, and of money, of going from the gold standard to having gold confiscated to allowing to not allowing citizens to hold 
their own gold to then that led to fractional reserve uh, of allowing banks to reserve out more than they had, which is just a, a downward spiral. So I think in the last 80 to 90 years, I think that was in 33 is when, uh, when the gold was confiscated. And then 34, the fractional reserve started to, to process. And then in 71 or 72, we had Nixon taking us off the gold standard. So uh, I think when your money started to not become redeemable um, and could just be kind of printed at will, that's when like the, the down, the downsides uh, of our economy started to happen. Um, like you said, uh, it's definitely a frightening thing to, 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 to realize. And I think there's a lot of people that just don't even think about that. They, they just, they go through their day by day. They, they go to their office from nine to five, they come home, they go to the grocery store, they, they do their thing and their day is not being affected too much. But when you start looking into to how our money is being issued, how it's being spent, where it's coming from, where it's going. Um, there's no other option to realize that like the system is, is, is fucked, <laughs> which is a, which is a very scary thing to, 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 to live under. Um, and then, and then you not only look at the debt, but you look at who the leadership is. And, and I think that's the other challenge is, is going back to some of those slogans that you mentioned, such as like Andrew Yang and, and Warren and, and these types of people that are, that are kind of just giving away things. I think there's uh, uh, an inherent indi- like a divide between people that are uh, fed up with the system for not providing the resources that they need, but then being clinged to or clung, I don't know the right verbiage, but being kind of reliant on the system to provide them something else. So they're not like getting off the system. They're, they're saying, okay, the system failed me in this way, but this guy's promising that he'll do it a different way. And as you've seen over hundreds of years, I, I mean, the amount of politicians in the United States that say something that is a good slogan or, or get some press or coverage or or, um, or or votership on their side and then actually don't follow through on half the things that they say, um, it, it's just really concerning as well. But it, it kind of goes back to like the money the money side of things. I think most people don't look into what money is and what politics are, and they don't see that there's other options and other solutions. And frankly, they, they just don't know that they exist. Um, I think that the political revolution will, will, will probably be next, but I think I think it's taking the, the the ability to print money out of the hands of the politicians uh, that that'll help us hopefully bring in new governance, uh, whether it's through centralized politicians or democratic elected officials or things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. There, there's as much as I'm uh, I'm uh, born and bred and, and, and raised in, in America, there, there's definitely a lot of things that uh, that I don't agree with that I don't like, and I think that aren't being run efficiently or effectively. You know, the United States dollar right now has a two percent inflation, and it's one of the most stable currencies on the planet. And I guess you have to be aware of the fact that there are countries around the world right now which have hyperinflation, and For example, I come from Romania and I live here and my parents have a history of raising money during their wedding in 1989. And within a couple of years when they wanted to buy a car with that money, it used to be enough, but due to hyperinflation, they could only buy one couch for the living room. And just imagine having your dreams broken and destroyed by the hyperinflation in your country. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely something that, 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 that somewhat frightens me in the sense of, of the global macroeconomic situation as well. I, I think there's a lot of stuff that, that's not right in America, but I think that there's a lot of countries that are facing much worse, whether it's Romania, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's 
Zimbabwe. Um, but I think it, it all typically stems back from having people in charge uh, of the money supply um, and, and not having software or having code um, and having math involved. Um, so as long as you give people the, the control and the ability to print money, and as long as that continues to enhance what, what their goals are, I think they'll continue to do that. And I think greed is, is a, a human emotion that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and unfortunately, when, when we have the, these figureheads that I think some people think are infallible or, or that, that genuinely have our best interests involved, I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And I think there's just a lot of inefficiencies with how governments are run. Um, but, but even like uh, to, to give you kind of an example of some of, of kind of that same general feeling, when, when we look at like the school system, going back to the student loan issues in, in America, that's somewhat the same. Like my parents, even 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, could, could work, could work part time or full time and actually afford to go to university and get a degree. Nowadays, you can't. So you have to either take out loans, get a scholarship or have parents that, that have wealth. Um, to, to put you through school without student loans. I think that's something that our, our economy is, is kind of being, uh, being hit upon. I think that's why you hear the student loan topic all the time because the, the younger generations, we're not going out there and, and buying houses and, and we're not going out there and starting businesses and we're not going out there and, and being entrepreneurial and things like that because our ability to take those risks are, are so minimized because of the debt burden that we have. So I, I think I think debt and inflation are, are just two different sides um, of kind of the government problem that that affects nations uh, in all shapes and sizes. So um, I, I wish I had an answer, uh, but I definitely believe that uh, that Bitcoin can provide a, a solution um, for for some of those problems. Um, and I, I think once we take out the the uh, ability for our governments uh, to to print money at will um, without any sort of consequence and without any sort of oversight. And, and I mean actual oversight, not government committees that are oversight committees, blah, 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 but actual oversight into where that money is going, how it's being spent, how it's being allocated is something that, that, it, that will continue to happen. It's like giving a kid an allowance and giving him a hundred bucks every week. And then he comes back asking for more money the next week. And it's like, what'd you spend it on? I don't know, whatever, whatever. And you never ask and you just keep giving him money and keep giving him money and hope that one day he'll stop spending it. But when you keep giving people things that they haven't earned, um, it, it, it gives them the sense that they, they can just get more of it. And I think going back to the entitlement and tax related issue, our, our, our tax revenue is starting to not be able to, to continue to benefit the entitlements and the guarantees that we've made to our citizens. So when our government is not able, it's, it's bad now, but when, when we can't even uh, bring in enough revenue to support the, the bloated institution that is the United States government, what's going to happen then? So it's definitely, definitely something that uh, that concerns me, but I think helps the the bullish case for Bitcoin in, in the sense that more people are getting screwed over, which is not a good thing. But as each pe- each person or each person that you know suffers, you start looking for alternatives, and, and I think people are starting to turn towards towards Bitcoin um, and, and crypto in general, and and the uh, some of these issues that I think can be solved through uh, through technology and software. Actually, it's these moments when you realize that the government cannot cannot pay back all the social security that you realize that it's run like a Ponzi. <laughs> yep. Supposedly you, you work for your entire life and you're supposed to have some kind of funds that are saved by the state after you pay your taxes and they're going to return to you when you get older, right? That's how it should function in theory. But yep. in practice, they just recklessly spend your money 
and they say, well, we'll figure out a way to tax people along the way so that we're going to pay the pension of this 70-year-old at some point. But it doesn't work like that. It's more of a Ponzi. They take money from one side. They have to neglect something in order to be able to pay something else. And I guess I saw a recent debate that you had about the 9-11 witnesses demanding for a special social security. I'm not sure if it was about a special pension or something. But oh, yeah. Senator Rand Paul went on and said, we cannot afford to pay this. They just started a huge social media campaign and said, no, these people are evil because they're not giving more money from the government to these people who think they're entitled to receive more money. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hot topic uh, all today that I've seen, especially across social media. I think uh, in one sense, it, it frustrates me because I believe our, our responders on 9-11 sacrificed their life and, and sometimes their family's life to, to go try and help and save other people. Um, so it, it upsets me in the sense that we don't have the ability to, to make them whole. Some of them ran into burning buildings that had materials that were burning that caused cancer and lung disease and all types of, of nasty stuff that now they're suffering from and they're dying from and their families can't, can't be supported when, when they're not there. So a large side of me really is frustrated. And then there's a small side of me that, that, um, that somewhat agrees, not agrees because I, I, I don't know, I don't know the politically correct way to get this point across, but, um, but I, I think it just, it, it, it's, it's interesting to see that there are some, uh, some politicians that are somewhat raising kind of a flag saying, where is this money going to come from and how long are we going to have to pay these, uh, these benefits, um, for let's say some of the, the, firefighters or, or policemen that were maybe 18 or 19 at the time, which was 20 years ago. So they're still in the forties. So that's what 30, 40, 50 years potentially that we need to pay these entitlements and benefits for. Um, where's that money coming from? But I think that goes, in my opinion, goes back to the military equation. I think the United States spends an absurd amount of money on our military, on bases, on the militarization of, of everything that we don't even take care of our own veterans. So I think, that's something that also frustrates me as well is there's such a a a, a, a position to to, uh, to to give uh benefits and and um and health care and things like that to, to immigrants that are migrating here um which i'm not against um uh, but i think we need to start taking care of of like our own citizens first and i think we've gotten to the point where i think we just egotistically believe that that we're better than everyone else and and this whole spreading democracy um, of just going to, into countries and, and taking over and, and saying, we don't like how you operate. Here is democracy. Good luck with it. Creates, creates unrest, creates conflict. Um, but I think that's, that's why we have such a big problem because in my opinion, we spend uh, an, uh, an insane amount of money on our military that can be used to, to fund some of these programs um, instead of funding um, the, the, the largest military in, in the world, especially when we have technology like, like nuclear, like nukes and things like that, that, um, that I don't know if you need, a, a I don't know how large our, our military force is, but I think, I think that that's, I guess ultimately my point is the, there's no oversight in, in where that money is going. Um, so to have the, the debate around where the money's coming from, I think we need to start off with understanding where is, where is anything going? And I think, that's what I, I kind of look at from like some of my experience with, with private equity is, is largely 
when I was in private equity, we were responsible for coming to a business that was operating okay, not great, and understanding where inefficiencies were, understanding how that business could be operated better, whether it was um, bringing in new leadership, uh, providing new products, better R&D, X, Y, Z. Um, but I think you always start off with, 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 uh, with the capital. You, you look at where, how is money coming in? How is it going? Um, and business can be kind of defined by like a spreadsheet like that. And I think there's nothing, in, especially in the United States, that, that's looking at how much money is coming in, where is it going, how is it being allocated, and, and who's making those decisions. And I think, I think that just really frustrates me because um, I think we, we bring in enough money like the, the, our taxes go up every other year. Um, I'm in California. So the amount of tax that I pay, not only, uh, to, to my local, but state and then federal government is relatively insane. Um, and it's like, you look at the infrastructure that's not there. Like our roads aren't fixed. Our, our school systems aren't, aren't the, aren't the best. Um, where is that money going? Uh, and, and I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anyone does. And I think that's kind of an issue that just gets swept under, under the rug, unfortunately. At the same time, it makes you wonder, well, before I get to this point, I just want to say that in the case of the first witnesses, it's kind of a Pandora's box kind of situation, because once you give the money, then you're going to have the war veterans who will come and demand for their own slice of the pie. They're going mm -hmm. to say, oh, but we did so much more than this. We went to Afghanistan and Iraq and all these countries, and we basically risked our lives every day, not just during that one day when the United States was under attack for the first time in 20, in 200 years or something. So yeah, it's a Pandora's box. It sets a precedent for other people to step in and demand for their own entitlements. But at the same time, you have to wonder if we reach a world in which Bitcoin becomes the currency, like the standard, then is it going to be much fairer than what we already have? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I, I don't know that I have uh, an answer to that. Um, I, I definitely agree with you going to the, the first part of that uh, in the sense of where does it end? Um, I think that's a, a, another big divide in America of, of looking at military uh, veterans and the lack of, uh, of support that they receive when they come home, whether that's through PTSD or, whether that's helping finding them new jobs or, or healthcare and things like that. You see a ton of, of homeless veterans. You see veterans that unfortunately commit suicide because of their experiences uh, uh, protecting America and things like that. So I think, I, I think you definitely summed it up in, in the sense that if you, if you start somewhere, where does it end? How does it end? Um, and where does the money come from? Um, and then um, what, what was the second part? It was about Bitcoin and establishing a financial system around it as it's good to have some money, but at the same time, we have to be better than what we are seeing in politics right now, because there is the risk of people who are into Bitcoin right now and criticize the system to end up replicating the same kind of behavior that we are seeing once they become maybe the financial elites of the world. And it's important to be voluntary stuff until the end and be able to donate money to different causes and make sure that the society at large benefits from our involvement and our participation in it. And we don't force anybody or any party to inflate the supply at any point. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I agree, especially on the, on the supply side. I think, I think there's probably smarter people that, than me that, uh, that can hopefully put together a, a solution for how do we, how do we govern, uh, a state that's not operated through government and, and, and through, and, and through fiat currency. So I think it's, it's a, a debate that I don't think any is going anywhere anytime soon. And, and hopefully we'll have more, more proposals or more resolutions for how to do this. And I think you're starting to see that on like a, on a small scale with some projects, whether it's through staking or whether it's through, through different governments, uh, governance, um, procedures, it's kind of just starting to test out how, 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 uh, obviously right now we're, we're kind of focusing on like how the protocol evolves, but I think that like decentralized governance can have a big impact on, on how other things are, are, are operated. It, it's, to, it's yet to see if, if that will work. Um, but I think that, that excites me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, it's just like a challenging aspect to 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 replicate the good things that the government provides, um, but not the bad things that they provide. And I think that's also something that that somewhat irritates me in the sense of some kind of Bitcoin maximalists who who are not advocating. I don't know if advocating is the right word, but that are envisioning kind of like a uh, a dystopian world in the next couple of months. I don't know how that would how would that would last in, in a sense if it if it happened that quickly. I think if this transition from big government to decentralized government, from fiat to crypto, happened in the next couple of months, I don't think it will. But if it like if it did, I, like I don't think that those effects are 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 wanted in the same way that I think people are. are saying that they want them. I think there's a lot of work to be done on understanding how do we make this a fair society. Uh, I think Bitcoin in the sense of having, having the, the mining side of things what was probably one of the most fairest ways to start uh, a cryptocurrency instead of like a, an ICO or, or, or things like that where, where, um, where there's like a centralized uh, company that's providing liquidity discounts and, uh, and things like that. But um, but at the same time, I think there is a disproportionate amount of early adopters and early users, whether it's through mining or through purchasing Bitcoin when it was sub $10 or sub $100. That, that will, in my opinion, have some pretty fundamental wealth moving forward. Um, and, and how do we ensure that they use that wealth for, for good causes and, and not bad causes? And, and I don't know the answer to that question, but it's definitely something that, uh, that keeps me up at night. At the same time, we do not know how much Bitcoin everybody owns unless they reveal their public keys and we are able to check. There is no way to know when they mixed something, where they hold it, for how long they have been holding their coins and, and how many treasures they are holding them. And there is a Romanian guy, I'm not sure if you heard of him, but his name is Mir Chapopescu. I have not, uh, just like off the top of my head. So he owns more than 100,000 Bitcoin. Wow. And he was one of the early people who got in. He's a computer scientist of sorts. And a few years ago, he was kind of famous and he got kind of crazy with his ideas. And at some point he was appointing Bitcoin knighthoods and he was creating basically noble classes for Bitcoiners, which kind of defeats the whole decentralization point. But he was insane in this regard. And he, is, he was kind of like Roger Veer, but back in 2010, 2011. Mm. I only gave out the example of 
his stuff because I know that he hasn't sold anything because he believed in Bitcoin back in the days when it was just unfriendly code that only the knowledgeable could run. And there was no friendly interface to run at the time, but he believed in it and he amassed a huge amount of it and mined it. And I guess he also owned an exchange at some point. And that kind of person is going to be a financial elite without a question. If Bitcoin goes to 100,000 or $1 million, then just imagine owning more than 100,000 Bitcoins. You're obscenely rich and there is nothing anyone can do about it. But it takes some kind of moral virtue and it takes some persuasion from the people who know how wealthy you are to actually make you contribute to society in a way which doesn't require government intervention. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think, I think it's always interesting to see the, the wealth accumulation that's happened. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how updated it is, but, uh, but there's a, a, a link uh, that's like bit in, bitinfocharts.com slash top 100 richest Bitcoin addresses. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily accurate because it's, it's showing here right now that uh, a balance of 100,000 to a million Bitcoin only has four addresses. Um, so it's definitely interesting to see tools like this um, that, that maybe just paint like somewhat of a picture um, uh, of the wealth that, that's being created. But um, another thing it points out is that there's uh, over 10 million or there's two, 2,100 um, addresses that have more than 10 million U.S. dollars in them now, which is a pretty good chunk of change. Obviously, probably not anywhere close to what it would be if, if you have 100,000 Bitcoin. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't know if I have like uh, a great answer um, on, on how do we how do we fundamentally put together a society in which the wealth disparity is, is like that? Um, how do, how do like the public services operate in and function who pays for what, how do people accumulate wealth, um, from a, a smaller standpoint? So it, it's definitely something that, um, that kind of fascinates me to just to see how this will play out. And, and I think that there's, there's always like an interesting story between people that got in early and, and then have gotten out and people that got in late and, and maybe own more. I think, that's something that I talk to my friends about all the time who were like, well, I wish I would have gotten into this at 2011, 2012 um, and bought. And it's like most of the people that I know that would have done that would have sold it back in 2012 when it went from $2 to $4 and they made double their money. Um, so it, I think it takes a special person to, to hold that amount of value. Um, and I think in this day and age, it takes someone who has considerable uh, fiat wealth as well. Um, there's not that many people, but I'm sure someone who got in that early where, where they have a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand Bitcoin probably can function and, and make a life through just Bitcoin. And I know there's people in America that, that do that, but I think the average majority of people still need some type of fiat wealth to pay their rent, their car bill, their mortgage, their student loan, whatever it may be. Um, so I think that that's always like the, the interesting piece is people who think they would have gotten early who, who would have held it at the same time. Um, and the people who got in late, but just had more fiat to put in. Uh, I know people that did get in early in 2012, 13, 14, and, and have considerable holdings. And I know people that got in 2015, 2016, and even 2017, um, where the prices were, were, were drastically different, but had uh, deeper pockets enabled in order to buy more Bitcoin. So I think 
the 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 um, distribute uh, distribution of wealth um, in Bitcoin terms is definitely something to keep our eye on moving forward. Anyway, I guess it's not worse than what we have with the Rockefellers and all the rich families, as we have a handful of people who can basically purchase entire countries. Yeah, I mean, you see that in America as well, like JP Morgan bailed out America. <laughs> so I, when our country literally couldn't pay back its debts, we went to private citizens and, and had to take out loans. So I think it, it's... I think people will always accumulate wealth. I think greed is an emotion that's not going anywhere anytime soon. But I genuinely believe that there's typically enough enough people who act in good faith and who generally want society to succeed in advance that will find solutions to <coughs> um, to some of those some of those issues. Um, and I think that's also the tricky thing about Bitcoin and crypto is you needed those early adopters that got in. that the price was uh, half a penny, a penny, uh, 50 cents, $1, $2, $4. Without those people, we wouldn't be sitting at whatever we're at now, 99, 9,900 or 10K roughly. Um, so I think it's kind of a good trade-off because without those people, I don't know if the adoption would have spread as quickly, as fastly or, or at all. Um, but then also, how do we monitor that situation so that um, people who got in early um, don't necessarily create the system that we're trying to fight against. Um, and I think that's the, another aspect of it is I think there's some people that got so fed up with our current system that wanted to get in early on the next system so that they weren't in the min- minority who was getting crushed by the system. So definitely a, 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 an interesting topic and, and something that I, I don't know if I have a, a good solution for, but, um, but something will be certainly interesting to see play out. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the most fascinating topics as we are using this. It's interesting, but where does it lead? Eventually, the purpose of Bitcoin is to overtake the financial system. But it's up to us as a community and as I guess all of us are early adopters up until the point it becomes mainstream. So we have to establish this kind of culture where we take care of projects and we take care of Of our own, like we have seen the case of Hadlonad with people donating for his legal defense. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to mobilize and donate whenever is possible and whenever is needed. I have also seen a similar initiative with BTC server, which BTC pay, which was supposed to receive an implementation over Tor and I guess the soft cap for the fundraiser was $10,000 and it was accomplished in 24 hours, roughly. Yeah, that was awesome. yesterday? A couple of days ago. Okay, yeah, I, I thought it was this week. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you see multiple examples of that. There's something that was uh, in America as well. I'm, I'm not sure if, if you heard of the Pineapple Fund. No. Um, but yeah, it was a, a project by uh, some anonymous individuals which actually gave away over 5,000 bitcoins to over 60 different charities um, in, in, in uh, December of 2017. So like right during, right during the, 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 the kind of um, the, the hype and the craze. So I, I think there's people who genuinely want to see good in this world. And I think giving them funds to be able to actually make impact can help. Um, so I think that there's definitely... 
there's definitely different um different different ways whether it's through philanthropy whether it's through charity that uh that people are actually trying to give back and, and help build a better world um and i think it, it takes a, a level of wealth to be able to do so uh, as you see with with traditional fiat um if you don't have enough money to, to make sure you have a roof over your head and food in your stomach and um, kind of like that, that basic sense of, uh, of uh, fundamental um, security, then you can't really give money away. So I, I think as, as the price, especially relative to the USD increases it in Bitcoin, um, you'll, you'll start seeing people that realize that they have maybe more wealth than they ever imagined or, or ever will need. Um, and we'll, we'll try to give some of that away. Even, even in traditional uh, like fiat, um, I think it's called like the, the sharing pledge or something like that, where like Bill Gates and some other billionaires have come together to collectively give away over 50% of their net worth. Obviously, we're talking about people that are worth tens of billions of dollars. So um, I, I don't think they're, they're, uh, they're uh, concerned about where their food's coming from or, or having a roof over their head. But I think it's just another example that I think when people get a disproportionate amount of wealth and, and have the the house or the car that was kind of their 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 dream um or, or whatever that that meant for them um that, that people are, are willing to, to give money away especially when it can have a a big um a big impact on other people yeah i agree i, I guess at some point the market decides and that's not up to us to intervene as you'll have philanthropists emerging naturally because we all want what we cannot have. And when you are obscenely wealthy, I guess you're hated by the community and you're not popular and you're going to try to buy their sympathy. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, uh, I think that's definitely the case in, in a few different examples. Um, but, but maybe I'm just ignorant, but I, 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 I'd like to believe that, that in addition to boosting public image that, like with the pineapple fund, for example, it was all anonymous. So uh, it wasn't something where people said, okay, I'm Dan and I'm giving a hundred Bitcoin away. Um, it was all like anonymous donations and, and it was an anonymous uh, kind of organization that, that started it and, and gave the money away and, and the charities that the money was given to was voted upon. Um, so I, I hope to believe that, that, that there is, uh, in addition to the people that are that think that they can just give money away to kind of boast their their image, uh, people that just genuinely don't care about um, about that image. But it might be a, a different sidestep because we don't really have like the the fanfare around Bitcoin wealth um, to that extent as we do with like traditional wealth, where you have like the Forbes list and billionaire list and millionaire list and all these things that are prime examples of people that want the publicity for having wealth. Um, I, I think the general, and maybe it's a, uh, an OPSEC uh, protection in the sense that I think people that have obscene amounts of wealth, uh, generally, maybe not obscene, maybe those guys uh, are a little bit different, but I think people that maybe have a hundred Bitcoin to a thousand Bitcoin, which uh, may not be a hundred thousand, but I think it is still a, a pretty good chunk of change. Um, are generally not promoting the fact that they have uh, these types of holdings or going around kind of flaunting it. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess my point is uh, I hope, um, and maybe I'm just uh, blissful ignorance that, uh, that there are some people out there that are genuinely willing to give back to the less fortunate and, and understand that they're in a position um, to, that gives them the ability to do so. I think one of the people who is most charitable in the space is Fluffy Pony. Yeah. He 
lives in South Africa and he gives money to a lot of charities. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm all for it. Like, um, I've luckily been associated with a few different charities um, and, and, and donate time and money uh, of a, uh, a summer camp that's actually coming up in a few weeks uh, here in California that uh, that's for kids that have either lost a parent or a sibling that uh, a bunch of volunteers actually go um, and spend a week with these kids. And it's all kids that are going through the same thing, um, showing them that there's people there, um, and things like that. So that's not meant to be a, a selfless plug, but meant to be that I think I think people are trying to donate, and, and some people have time, and some people have money, and some people have both. And I think as long as you're, you're giving back to people that are less fortunate, as, there's there's not a right way to donate um, or a right way to help people. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure if I have any more questions for you at this point. I guess you wanted to discuss the issue of Bitcoin maximalism earlier. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's up to you. I'm, um, I'm, I'm game for a, a little bit more. It's getting, uh, getting a little, it's getting what, 1245, uh, my time. So getting a little late, but, um, but it's up to you. I mean, if you have any more questions, I'm happy to walk through them. Um, I don't know if you have like repeat guests on, but maybe six months from now we can have a, another, uh, another chat and, and kind of see if, if, uh, the questions change or if there's additional stuff to talk about. So, um, I'm, I'm game if you have anything else that, uh, that comes to mind. Well, I guess we have covered a lot and it's been more than 90 minutes, an hour and a half. And, uh, I, right now a quote by Alfred Hitchcock crosses my mind about the length of films, which is supposed to be proportional with the human bladder. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I definitely feel that quote a little bit. Um, plus, I uh, I don't know how interesting I am to to your users and, and to your viewers. Um, so uh, maybe an hour and a half is way more than enough time uh, for for people to hear me blabber on and and uh, and, and talk through my ideas. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm more than welcome to to set up another call with you maybe six months from now or a year from now and, and kind of just check in and and see. Obviously, I want to want to connect with you. Uh, uh, throughout that time period, but maybe it'd be interesting to do like a, a six months from now, uh, like rerun of, of this episode and see if anything's changed or if there's new developments or things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, it's up to you. I don't, I don't know if you have like a, a closing question or something maybe we can wrap up about. Um, but either way, it was definitely, uh, I'm, I'm always game to, to, to give away my, my thoughts and opinions and ideas. And uh, I'm sure some of them are, are right and wrong. And some of them people agree with and don't disagree with, but I think, the, the, the more conversation that we can have in, around these topics and issues, at least it gives people more de- data points to go off of or more, uh, more opinions to, to, to use for, for their own education or, or how they think about things. So um, always happy to, 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 to chat with you. Okay. So I guess that if people listen up to this point, then they must really <laughs> like you and they might, must be interested in contacting you. So how can they reach you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'd say I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is dhanum, D-H-A-N-N-U-M-8. Um, so I'm pretty active on there when I can, uh, whether it's sharing random blurbs or retweeting articles or, or things like that. Um, so pretty active on Twitter. Um, and then uh, our website is uh, hanumcapitalmanagement.com, uh, spelled the same way, H-A-N-N-U-M capitalmanagement.com um so you can reach us on our website or um, reach me personally through twitter 
um, always happy to, to talk uh, talk crypto with, with anyone who's interested. And um, and yeah, ho- hopefully we have some people that uh, that stuck it out or, or couldn't find a, a way to exit out of uh, exit out of the, the video and, and somehow are still watching and, and got some value out of it. And hopefully uh, hopefully my, my rambles uh, were cohesive to to give someone some value. Also, I have this kind of campaign during the podcast in which if I get any donation in Bitcoin, it's going to get half of it is going to go to the guest just because your time and your insights are valuable. But if you don't want to get the BTC, which never really happens, honestly, I, I have only received a donation a couple of times and it was about 50 bucks. But if it happens, do you have any kind of charity or cause which you want to donate? I, uh, I actually do. Um, so yeah, if, if someone's willing to, to donate their, their, their Bitcoin, um, I would, uh, I would gladly, uh, not, not accept, um, any for my own personal use. Um, but, uh, they, the camp that I was mentoning is a camp called experience camps. Um, and like I said, it, it's for, it's a camp for kids that have either lost a parent or a sibling, um, that's located in about five different locations throughout the United States. Um, we've actually partnered with open node to accept Bitcoin donations. Um, and you can actually donate through, uh, experience camps, uh, website and that's experience, uh, E X P E R I E N C E dot camp slash Bitcoin. Um, so if you're interested in making a donation or if someone makes a donation to you, uh, I would love for my, uh, my sliver to, to go towards, uh, experience camp. It's something that I, I'm very, uh, very passionate about. Uh, I lost my father at a young age and didn't have that support network and hopefully helping some of these kids, uh, learn that there's more people out there that are going through the same things and giving them the, the tools and, um, and, and just the, the mental security to know that, uh, they have a, a network of people that are supporting them and, and there for them. So, um, so yeah, that, uh, that, that'd be my plug. Oh, that sounds really nice. And right now I feel bad that I haven't asked you about this earlier on during the show because I'm not sure how many people will hear this, but I can add a link in the description. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll, uh, I'll DM you the, uh, the link. So, uh, just so you have it, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that, uh, that, that hits home for me in, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. I, I volunteered for the last couple of years and um, ha, I've been uh, donating. Uh, up at, the Bitcoin donations just became live about a month ago. We have a, another volunteer that's part of the Blockstream, uh, the Blockstream crew. Um, so I uh, was lucky enough to speak with the Open Node guys and get uh, the Bitcoin donations set up uh, for this camp season. So um, it's definitely uh, a, a, an organization that... Uh, uh, that definitely uh, provides a lot of value to me and, and hopefully my, my time um, helps some of these kids uh, kind of go through some of the, the, the battles that they're dealing with, whether it's through depression or anxiety or suicide or drug use. Um, it, it's just uh, something that, that really, really uh, affected me when I was younger uh, of not having kids uh, around me that were going through the same things uh, of losing a parent. Um, and when I learned about their organization, uh, it, it was a no brainer to get involved and, um, I'll be volunteering in, in about two weeks through uh, an eight-day camp in uh, in California, and then there's a couple camps in Maine and New York and and uh, Georgia and Florida. So, um, yeah, if, if anyone's uh, listened to us this long, um, uh, I would love uh, for uh, some donations to go, whether it's through fiat, you can put in five bucks, ten bucks, or through Bitcoin. Um, it would be greatly appreciated. Okay, so thank you very much, Dan. This was a great podcast, and. I hope we'll do that second episode in six months or one year. 
Yeah, Vlad, it, it was a uh, it was a pleasure to, to connect with you. Uh, I'm glad we had the opportunity to chat and find a time that worked. And uh, I look forward to, to keeping in touch uh, during that duration and, and would be uh, more than honored to, to be able to come back six months from now and then uh, run through uh, some things with you. Okay, so sleep tight and I'll catch you later. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.